This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. A new organization has formed amid coronavirus. It's called the Washington Nightlife and Music Association. It's mostly made up of local music venues who've had to close their doors indefinitely because of the pandemic. The new organization says without assistance, many of our independent music spaces and venues will have to close permanently in the next month. Last Thursday, I spoke with three folks in this new association over a Zoom meeting to talk about the state of music venues and what can be done to preserve them in the future. My panel started off by introducing themselves. My name is Dana Sims. Uh, I own two music venues, El Corazon, which holds 800 people, and the Fun House, which holds 200. They're both located right downtown off the main exit at Stuart Denny Way. The space I occupy has been in a music room or dance hall since 1910. Uh, it's most notably known as the ground zero of the grunge explosion in the early 90s. But uh, we're primarily an all-ages venue, uh, do primarily touring acts, and uh, focus mainly on metal, alternative, and punk. Uh, Stephen Severin, one of the owners of Numos, Barboza, and The Runaway. Um, Numos, 650 cap room. Barboza is a 200 cap room, and The Runaway is the bar next to us. We're up in the uh, Tenth and Pike, the old Pike Pine corridor. Yeah, this is hitting everybody hard. It's why we formed the the organization, and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, momentum and uh, a lot of good energy behind trying to do what all we can to save our music venues in Washington. And Kevin, how about you? Introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Kevin Sir. I'm the founder of Artist Home. Mostly we are known for putting on music festivals here in the Northwest, like Timber Outdoor Music Festival and Dobe Fest. But I'm 43 now. I've been in music since I was 18. I was a touring musician for seven years of my life, touring about 10 months a year. And um, I moved to Seattle I found myself in the Bay Area where I, I spent a lot of my life looking around and realizing that there were no musicians left and all of our small and mid-sized venues were closed. And I wanted to do something in music and I wanted to do something to help the music community that I grew up with. And, and that's actually what made me move to Seattle and start my business. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that Seattle with the amount of music venues they had things like KXP, people at the time were writing about music, and um, it had a live music culture. Um, And if it wasn't for Seattle, and specifically our music venues, which to me are the foundation of our entire music economy here, I would have never been able to fulfill this dream that I am currently in and is currently at uh, a very high risk of uh, going away. So I am here and I proud and honored to just be included with this uh, organization because I recognize that the musicians are the lifeblood but, uh, of our music economy, but these venues are the veins that that blood flows through and they don't have a pathway to grow. And uh, my festivals and the things I do for a living wouldn't exist if it wasn't for everything that venues do to um, make this entire music economy exists here locally. 
Yeah. So Dana, um, you were on Sound and Vision um, back, I think, in the fall or summer. And back then we were talking about just how much um, you know, what, what's at stake for venues? And that was months ago before coronavirus. And in a lot of the chains and issues we've been seeing is just Seattle's exponential growth, you know, over the past five years or so. Um, and so, you know, for, for Dana and, and for you, Stephen, I mean, before coronavirus even hit, you know, what were just some issues that venues were facing even before this, you know, whether that just be the cost of running a venue, the exponential cost of, you know, having a space like this, what were some issues that you were facing before this even hit? It's expensive to run a venue. Uh, we're in a town where things are getting prohibitively more expensive. And uh, number one of our points that we're pushing for in the association is that we need grants and cash for rent, uh, not loans. Uh, purpose being, we, have, we ought to be able to provide a gathering space for large groups of people, we need a lot of space. Most rent is calculated on space. Ergo, our rents are really expensive. That coupled by the fact that it seems everything, as far as government fundraising lately, has been let's tack it on to property tax. That gets passed through to us, so our rents exponentially keep going up every time property tax goes up. The fact that we're sitting dormant right now makes it really, really challenging because our rents are really, really high. And the other factor that faces into that is that once we reopen, uh, it's not like a restaurant or a bar where everyone floods in the next day because we're primarily touring venues and tours require a lot of planning, a lot of logistics. We're one stop in a, a, a run of anywhere from three weeks to three months, depending on how heavily the artist that we're hosting is touring. That means that they've pulled up stakes for anything that's happening in the near term due to the uncertainty. Uh, and most of them are pushing at the earliest to the late summer or fall, uh, which means that even if we reopen next month or the month after, uh, there's not going to be a ton of tours lining up to blow through the city for a while. Um, but those expenses aren't going to decrease with the decreased business. And that's why the venues are trying to get this message across that we need help because there, there, is, no, there is no scenario that we're seeing collectively for sustainable cash flow in the near term, even if the lights get turned back on. So, I mean, for for you know both you, Dana, and and for Stephen, you know, at at Numos, um, you know, if like right now, if you look at your schedule, you know, what is the earliest that you actually have a confirmed date? You know, that 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 tours are like, okay, I'm feeling comfortable that I can still do this date, you know, in Seattle. Like, wh what does your calendar look like right now? Like, what are the earliest gigs you actually have on the books right now? What hasn't been canceled? I'll toss that to Stephen first. Uh, looking at my calendar, it looks like all of April touring is gone. There's a couple local shows that could happen, but they won't because um, there's no way we're going to be open yet. Uh, May, there's a couple of things that haven't um, canceled yet, but not much, uh, which I don't really see us being open in May at any point. And then once we hit June, uh, there's still some stuff there, but it's all, it's all getting pushed back. I mean, we're... When this when this first came up, the artists started pushing back to the summer. And they're like, okay, by the summer, 
hopefully we'll have enough for sure we know what's going to happen we don't have to break up these tours and now it's being pushed back to the fall most like venues our size we're already booked in the fall we're we're done um we're six months to nine months out on booking shows a lot of artists are just like i'm gonna take 2020 off because i don't want to deal with like setting up all this tour and everything that goes into it only to have it get pushed off again. So, I mean, we're, we're looking at, we could be a year out before we even get anywhere near to a normalcy. And we don't know what the new, new normal is. Everything is so up in the air. And one of the things that we can't get people to understand is the immediacy for people that need cash. Like, I'm good for a couple of months before I have to just shut our doors and be like, I can't, I can't pay the insurance anymore. I can't pay this. Other venues, they're not even in that situation. We just got out of the slowest part of the year. Mid-December, generally all touring stuff stops. You get some local stuff, sure. You go to January, you got sober January. A lot of people don't want to tour then. Icy roads, conditions, it's just, it's not good. People stay home. Mid-February, it starts kicking in a little bit. And then March, April is when it picks back up. That's a long time. That's a long time for us to be dark and continuing to pay that rent and that insurance and the taxes. And it's, uh, you know, there's already venues that have made the decision to not open again because they can't get there. They don't see a lifeline coming in that time that they're going to be able to uh, weather the storm for lack of a better thing. So in the thing that's really important to remember is everybody's in this. I talked with a jewelry store owner the other day, a casino operator, uh, somebody that runs a dry cleaning. Everybody's in this situation. I own a bar called life on Mars. If we open on June 1st, we're open June 1st. Numos may not be because we don't have a show. So there's a very big difference between what us and other small businesses are, are uh, sort of having to swallow. I mean, Kevin, how the hell is he going to do a festival, which is his, he only gets what, three times a year. You get th- three festivals a year to pay your bills for the year. I mean, that's a lot of eggs in a basket, but that's, that's what he does. And he'll tell you how much it's up in the air, but it's, it's scary. Yeah, Kevin, how, how are you feeling about all this? I'm terrified, you know. Um, we're an independent business. Uh, we're, we're keeping our staff, you know, in place as long as humanly possible. And, um, you know, this is, venues to me are that, that is a fear. That's a long-term fear of losing the venues where like, I do look at myself and I do look at the festivals seeing that, you know, we're sort of the topper on the cake, <laughs> uh, the venues of the cake and uh, just being objective and looking at our music economy and how it works. Um, yeah. The, the fear is both ways, like for my own business and, but uh, for so many close to your friends, businesses, and also for, like I mentioned earlier, the industry that I moved here for and the industry that's provided me with a massive amount of opportunities 
to honestly do something kind of weird, <laughs> you know, like you wouldn't really write up a business plan for what I do and, and look at it on the forefront and say, this is going to work, but it has because of the city. And um, so, yeah, I mean, right now, like we're timbers in July. And so we don't know what our future holds, but we know that in the meantime, we're going to fight like, you know, fight like hell to preserve as much of our music community as humanly possible. Cause that's all we can do right now. Um, everything regards to our business is just sit and wait. Well, I know, Kevin, you and I, I mean, after we got the news, just, you know, when the governor first ordered, you know, no events over 250 people. But even if you are less than 250 people, you have to comply with CDC guidelines to make sure the virus doesn't spread. And then you called me that day and you said you've been talking to so many venues and you're like, the reality is, is like I heard tears on the other end. And so, like, what is your sense of like, when you look at the venues in Seattle, like, how many do you feel like are will be able to weather this storm? I mean, we still don't, there's so much we still don't know, but just like from your sense and your, you know, checking in with folks in the music community, how many venues do you think will be able to survive or, or not? Well, I already know two that are just, they're, they're done. They haven't made an announcement yet. So I haven't like said who they are, but I um, want to respect that and let them be. And I know some that say, I, you know, if like the bills come April one and there's not any sort of help, they're done. Um, and I, I don't know how to put a real number on it. I just know that when I hear people speak, you know, all these venue owners speak in our meetings with this uh, association, um, kind of the timeline I hear in the weeks that people mentioned sort of top out around eight, nine weeks. And that I haven't heard anyone really mention uh, a timeline longer than that. And that's frightening. Like that's just, uh, you know, like, like I said, the festivals and what we do, like, it's a really, it's a real privilege to be able to do that. But to think about all the memories and, and all of the life, all the friendships and everything that's been gained, uh, that is so much a part of our lives. It's part of KXP's lives and everyone there. Like, all of it can be tied back to live music and nowhere does it happen more than our venues. And we really want to protect our artists. Like the name of my company is artist home. And that is because our, our mission is to be as much as we can, the people in the corner of the artists that we as musicians never had. And um, people need to realize that when we're, we're fighting for our venues, that's where artists make 80% of their income. That's, that is their lifeblood. Like, those stages are where they make their money. It certainly isn't off of Spotify. And when I do the simple math in my head of how much an artist gets paid a year in Spotify, what their draw is, it always turns out to be they get paid about as much in a year as they would headlining the venue that's appropriate for them for one night. Like one show's pay pretty much pays a year's worth of streaming. And so when you think about supporting the arts and, and keeping our artists afloat and alive, like, the venues really need to be fought for, for our artists. And so they have a place where they can grow and they have a chance. And that's really what we're fighting for is giving these venues a chance. And when I do talk with these owners and I've talked with owners before this all happened and, you know, Dearman at Connor Byrne, I've always joked, they said, you know, if you just, if you were just to the only Irish bar on Ballard Avenue, you'd probably have a more viable business than if you were a music venue. He totally agrees. But the fact is so many of these 
you know, venue owners, they do it because they grew up as part of a community. They found a community, they found family, they found friends, they found their culture through live music. And so many of these venue owners, like, it's a love to do it. And it serves our artists who are our most precious uh, commodity in these times, especially. How would we get through this if it wasn't for music, if it wasn't for film? If, like, and people need to value that. We need to, to reassess, uh, you know, the value we place on these things and the structures that support these things. Yeah, I'm beautifully said, Kevin. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really crazy to consider everything that's happening right now. Again, for those just tuning in, I'm talking with Kevin Sir of Artist Home, Stephen Severin of Numos, and Dana Sims of El Corazon and Funhouse. So y- you all are part of, again, this new organization called Washington Nightlife and Music Association. And you're asking folks to get in touch with their senators, you know, their their political leaders, and, and ask for five different things that you've laid out. Um, and those five things are offering cash assistance, rent forgiveness and reductions, financial payments and extended assistance for workforce, tax relief and insurance relief and revisions. So, you know, I'm opening this up to any of you. Why are these five things so essential right now? And how does it differ to what you've, you know, what, you know, the state or city or federal government has proposed to you? Why are these five things so important? I think that these five things are sort of a, a jumping off spot. Um, so two weeks ago, we started talking about setting up this organization, WANMA, and we launched it two days ago. Uh, it, it's a group of a bunch, there's a bunch of us, it's a huge collective, but there's a, you know, a, a couple dozen people that are sort of the main folks setting up this giant thing that is we're getting hundreds and hundreds of calls into our senators and our reps telling them that we need these things. This is a crazy feat. Um, so I, I, I just want to address that because every time I think about it, I'm like, we're rock and roll people. Like this is, we're not political. Like this isn't what we do. We're supposed to go to shows and drink some whiskey. Um, but the reason that uh, these five things are, these are the things that may give us a few months time to make it to the next phase of what's happening with this virus. I mean, we have to be able to continue to pay the, the basic bills, um, the, you know, the rent forgiveness. It also goes along with mortgage forgiveness. If I'm not going to pay my rent, my building owner shouldn't have to pay his mortgage. I mean, they have to make that payment too. It's not something where it's just uh, they have to eat it. It has to be, they they have to go together. Um, And that's something that I think gets forgotten quite a bit. But that's just, you know, it's such a, a huge number for venues because as Dana said, based on square footage and we have a lot of square footage. And so we need to have those things. We we pay on insurance. We pay liability insurance on our ticket sales, the drinks and food that we sell, as well as the building. We're not selling any drinks and we're not selling any tickets, but we're still paying based on that. 
if we make it through, some of us have a thing that's called an audible policy, audible policy, where down the road, we may be able to get that back, but some of us aren't gonna make it that far. And so this is the reason that we have to get all of these things done and we need to get it done today. Um, one of the things I wanted to just sort of point out is like, we're doing this in the state of Washington. Dana and I, I think Kevin was on this call and a few others, we were just on a call with 150 other venue owners and stakeholders across the country that are all doing the same thing. We're all in the same exact boat. They're all, we're all in the same position. And so we're trying to unify to come out as one message so that people understand, like, can you imagine not going to the crocodile and seeing a show? It's been around for 25, 26 years. Nirvana played there. I've seen amazing, incredible shows. It could be gone. Like literally that venue could be gone and it could become a Thai restaurant. I mean, that's the reality that we're in and we need people to really understand that point. Like this isn't a thing, but we wouldn't be doing all of this if we didn't absolutely have to. Trust me, I would much rather be sitting around and watching reruns of Knicks games and not sitting on Zoom calls all day long, which I didn't know what Zoom was a week and a half ago. So without these, without these five things, we, we don't stand a chance. I mean, we just, we don't because we're, you know, you see us, we're independent venue owners and it's just, there's not big reserves that we can make it very far down the road. Can you, I mean, have you had any, you know, either from the city or from the state or from the federal government, any assistance to this point? Have, you know, government leaders been reaching out to you? Have you seen any assistance thus far or no? I would say actual assistance, no, because government's still scrambling, trying to deal with a lot of issues at the moment. Um, right now, we just need a place at the table. And that's what we're trying to do, um, because as was pointed out, I mean, everyone is calling. Everyone has needs. Everyone has concerns. We feel really good locally. I mean, we have... We have people in city and county government that are staunch supporters of our music scene and have even called us out specifically in certain press conferences that have happened over the last couple of weeks. So that's encouraging. But, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the conversations, a lot of the needs are going upstream and a lot of the funding and a lot of the uh, what's available is coming downstream. So we sort of have to think a lot bigger than is outside of our normal comfort zone, as Stephen pointed out. I mean, we're rock and roll promoters, and all of a sudden we're forced to be political for our own lives. One of the main points in our thing was, you know, finding ways to take care of our workforce, because when you fold it all back, there's a lot of people that are involved doing what we do, from the bartenders to the stagehands to the sound engineers to the tour managers to the janitors that have to clean up. And then you add in all the people on the other side that go to these shows or the artists that go through the venues. It may technically be a small business, but our small business is a grand business in the scheme of society. It touches a lot of people in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of stakeholders. And I think no matter what angle or what position you are as a stakeholder, uh, if you're posed with the thought of venues not being there, it's not a, it's not a scenario that 
any stakeholder wants to see. So, I mean, again, um, as part of, you know, the Washington Nightlife and Music Association that you, you've just formed, you know, it's, you know, from my understanding, it's a lot of just encouraging other folks to reach out to their state representatives, senators, you know, about these five points that you lay out again. It's cash assistance. You know, this is for to support music venues, rent forgiveness and reductions, financial payments and extended assistance for workforce, tax relief and insurance relief and revisions. So are there other things that you think need to be done in order for venues to come out, you know, okay on the other side, other than, you know, folks reaching out to senators? Um, Are there other things you suggest, um, you know, needs to happen? Um, And and also, what are your hopes uh, as we look to the future? I can echo some sentiments that have been expressed uh, from local government and say that this uh, pandemic has really exposed um, a lack of safety nets that have been needed and um, and that a long term, you know, when I hear, you know, local folks who are in government who do represent us speaking about the long term vision of change that needs to happen so that we're not as in peril as we are um, down the road or, you know, decades, hopefully never again. There is talk about long-term change and there is talk about, um, you know, what I hope is some deregulation and some considerations in terms of how expensive it is is to run those venues. Um, uh, Issues related to property tax and how, if you have, if you rebar and then, you know, some huge piece of property gets sold for a ton of money next door, it dries up the value of, of that property, the property tax, and then drives up the rent. There are already things uh, that were in the works that, um, you know, would help um, create, you know, I, I, I wish I had it in front of me, but um, uh, tax credits that would go towards the renter. Um, and things like that, that I think that this scenario is going to help um, accelerate and make a priority when, hope, you know, when we get past the fact that, you know, our politicians are dealing with humanitarian crisis. But yeah, I think that, uh, you know, one thing I really hope is that uh, stakeholders are prioritized when it comes to, you know, civic arts organizations and just how the city, uh, the, you know, Office of Arts and Culture, you know, et cetera, like very sensitive to making sure that venue owners are in the room, that they're found ways to be included. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today. Um, there's so, I mean, I don't know the words to say, but we hope the best for the future. Um, again, the organization that's just been um, put together, you know, with the folks I've been talking today, including Kevin Sir of Artist Home, Steve Severin of Numos, Dana Sims of El Corazon and Funhouse, the organization, they and other venues across the state and in the Seattle area have put together an organization called Washington Nightlife and Music Association. You can find out more at WANMA, that's W-A-N-M-A dot info, um, to find out more about the five steps that they're asking for folks to ask their state representatives and senators to help out to ensure that the music industry and community is alive after we are done with coronavirus. To all of you, thank you so much. And again, best of luck um, with what's ahead. Thank you. 
That was this week's panel conversation recorded last Thursday, right before Washington state's governor extended his shelter-in-place order through May 4th. As Kevin Sir said, many venues say they only have eight to nine weeks before they have to close down permanently. Lifting shelter-in-place on May 4th would put those venues at about the eight-week mark. Again, the website to learn more about this organization and what you can do to help is wanma.info. That's W-A-N-M-A dot info. I'll also post a link in the details page of this podcast. All right, so we've heard a lot of bad news lately surrounding coronavirus, and we are in need of stories of hope. So this week, we asked listeners, what's a song that gives you hope and why? Here were some of their answers. My name is Mary Hughes. And the song that's giving me hope right now is a cover, actually. It's I Can Hear Music, covered by She and Him. The reason why that song's giving me hope is because I chose it to be one of the songs that is played during what is supposed to be (laughs) my wedding that's supposed to happen on June 26th. And with everything that's going on right now, with the shelter in place and that getting extended, we don't actually know if our wedding is going to take place on that date or not. And there's that uncertainty of not knowing when to choose a different date and and when that date could be. And it's just kind of been one of those things where I've been sad thinking about that and upset that it, it might not happen the way we planned it exactly. But when I do listen to our playlist and to that song in particular, I get kind of emotional, but not in this bad way because ultimately getting married you know the actual event is just one day but getting to spend the rest of my life with this person and see them day in and day out and especially right now that's that's the bigger deal so yeah that that's why that song gives me hope because we're already in that kind of committed state of mind now My name's Kate Bradfield and I'm in Seattle. And the song that is giving me so much hope right now is um, from a song that I heard at Pickathon three years ago by Buck Meek, the guitarist for Big Thief. And I didn't know it at the time, didn't really know who he was, but kind of in the middle of this concert, he sang a song all by himself, no instrumentals at all. And it was the most beautiful rambling song about his grandmother's car and a mechanic that helped fix his grandmother's car. And I couldn't ever sign the song again until last Saturday morning when Buck Meek put out his newest album, his first album. And I heard the song and it just blows me away. This feeling of hope that I get when I hear the lyrics of a mechanic who is fixing his grandmother's Cadillac and loaning her a car. (laughs) I get tearful just thinking about it. Loaning her a car and putting in a spare part that he ordered back in 95 and no trouble just to put it in now. 
And I just feel like right now we need so many more mechanics and people like that who just are willing to help in meaningful ways. I can't get it to start again. There's a pigeon in the fan. Would you lend me a hand? We'll push it up shamrock and have Joe take a look. They call him Joe by the book. And I trust him Fixed my grandma's Cadillac She threw Two rocks Hi, my name is Olga. I'm from Seattle. I'm sitting at work with another 20 people that are left from 250 people in the building. Still coming into work every day. Uh, there's a song that I will always play when I'm really down. It is Not Right But It's Okay by Whitney Houston. The energy of the song is very strong and it gives me a lot of hope. It's a really huge kick energy uh, by Whitney's Houston voice and her message. It's not right, but it's okay. I'm going to make it anyway. And it helped me a lot of times when I moved to U.S. with two of my small kids and now I have three. It is really hard to be away from my family and during immigration, and especially in this time with the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, but this whole song helps me a lot to go to work every morning, still coming in, helping everyone here go through the day, even when they're tired, exhausted, people are really scared. But still, it is amazing how the song helps me just to feel this energy and... Uh, yeah, just I'm gonna make it anyway. <laughs> it's not right, but it's okay. I'm gonna make it anyway. Pack your back up and leave. Don't you dare come running back to me. It's not right, but it's okay. I'm gonna make it anyway. Close the door behind you and leave your key. Thanks to everyone for sharing your story and thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear on this show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It only takes a minute or two and makes a huge difference. KEXP is also a publicly funded station, so please consider giving a one-time $20 donation to the show at kexp.org sound. Thanks so much for listening. And check out the next episode of Sound and Vision. It's dropping on Thursday. We'll talk about the legacy of Ben Gibbard's side project, the Postal Service, and how the Postal Service's way of collaborating musically remotely is still kind of relevant today amid the coronavirus. And the reason the band is called the Postal Service is they were sending digital audio tapes, these old thing called DATs, uh, back and forth through the mail. That's next time on Sound and Vision. 